on Monday, March 27th, this last week, a female transgender ex-student shot up a private Presbyterian school in Nashville, Tennessee. In this event, three children and three faculty members, a total of six people, were murdered. Okay? If you didn't know that, that's what happened this week. Just so you know, you can find it on the news. Um, it's been a very tragic event as our nation mourns that, and I think as Christians mourn it as well. Now, this school that this happened at believes and teaches the very core confessional documents of our faith. Being a Presbyterian school, there's a lot we have in common. They are a conservative school that upholds the very things that we've been talking about in last week's service. They were trying to live out a life of someone who abides in Christ and even shaping their curriculum accordingly. They're trying to take seriously Jesus's commands. Jesus says to do this, so they're trying to do it in the, the way that even they're teaching, not just living. And if that doesn't bring the event close enough to home, I'd like to remind you that Bree and I were staying in Nashville, Tennessee, two days prior to this event. Where we were staying was only seven miles from where this event happened. It was very close to us in so many different ways, if you think about it. Now, if you paid attention last week, or if you were even here, we saw how living this life of abiding in Christ has all kinds of rewards. It really does. Productivity, provision, loving community, and my favorite, joy. Okay, So all these things are true, but this week I want to show you how this calling to be a Christian, to abide in Christ, is a dangerous calling. It is actually dangerous to be a Christian. While abiding in Christ does bring the believer true and complete joy, it does not shield him or her from the cruelty of the world. It doesn't protect you from that. This is a resilient joy that we've been talking about, one that is hardy, a Christ-like one, the kind that can say, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, right? death. He despised the shame, but yet it was still his joy to go there. That is the kind of joy that we're talking about. It's not a joy that the world understands or knows. So we're going to read about how being a basic Christian, and I do mean that, just, just a, a general basic Christian, evokes a causeless hatred from the world that might leave you tempted to fall away, tempted to walk away from this resilient joy that we can talk about but is a lot harder to actually live out. But Jesus gives us a great hope amid the trials that we are told we will face. Right? There is hope for us this morning. So let us read our text this morning and find what that hope is that the believer has uh, in the face of such hatred from the world. Again, our text is John chapter 15, verses 18. We're going to read through chapter 16, verse 15. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If they had not come, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have been 
or they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, or sorry, whoever hates whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty. But now they have seen and both hated me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have left us with your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us, that your word is living and active. And Lord, as we come to your word today, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words and carried them down to the ages to us today, we pray that that same Holy Spirit that resides in us who believe in you would speak to us. We pray that we would see what you are telling us today in our current events. Help us to be able to make sense of what is going on in the world. Help us to be able to uh, come to your word and find hope. We thank you that your son Jesus does not leave us without hope. You leave us with a helper, a comforter. And Lord, we pray that we would be in touch with him today. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I shared this troubling event with you this morning that I think most of you are already aware of already, but I, I did this to bring this text home to us. In that shooting, the headmaster was killed, teachers were killed, and even three students were killed. And such are some of you. Right? We have teachers in the room. This could have happened to the Christian school that you teach at. This could have happened to the leader of the Christian school. This could have happened to your kids. Right? This could have happened to any one of us. It could have been that we were all gathered here today, and rather than being in the pew, you were up here in a casket, all of us gathered around your body. That is the reality that six Christians are living with today. Right? Their families are coming around to mourn their loss because of the hatred of the world, 
because of the hatred of the world. We've seen it in this text. It's, it's brutal. And that is why Jesus warns these disciples ahead of time. If you look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, he very clearly tells us his purpose in telling us that the world will hate us. What's the purpose? Verse 1, chapter 16. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. So that's why he tells us. Well, why might they fall away? Why might we be tempted to fall away? Well, it's because they are going to, and you are probably going to experience, brutal and causeless hatred from the world. We see this in our text in uh, verse 18, chapter 15. Okay, This hatred without a cause is going to come. Also, persecution from the world, verse 20. Right? Persecution is going to come. It says in verse 2 of chapter 16, they might come and throw you out of the synagogues. In other words, they might excommunicate you. They might cut you off from the community. Okay, So that's a reality. And then we also see in verse 2 of chapter 16, they might even kill you. They might kill you. And it's easy for us to say, well, that's a stretch. We're, we're not living in that kind of persecution these days. Look at the news. Look around us. Jesus isn't joking. He isn't kidding around. The reality is, is the world will hate us, okay? And as we saw in this week's newspapers, not even a child is immune to this hatred, right? They're even going after the kids, these kids who are professing to be Christians. It really is a fulfillment of Scripture, like Jesus says in verse 25 of chapter 15. It says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Just like there was no reason to kill Jesus, there was no cause to kill Jesus, no flaw that could have been exposed in him, no sin that was bothering the world, they will extend this same hatred to you, is what Jesus is saying here. Maybe even to your children. This is a scary reality, a dangerous calling to be a Christian. It won't be your hypocrisy it won't be your sin that will enrage a transgender to murder you. It won't, right? In fact, they would actually welcome many of your sins. They want you to change and be like them. It says if you loved the world, they would have loved you, right? If you would have lived like they lived, then they would have loved you. They would have welcomed you. They would have uh, lived among you in harmony. But no, no. It will be your simple abiding in Christ's word and standing for what you believe amid a culture that hates that teaching that will land you in this hated category. This is the truth of scripture. So the world will hate you, Jesus says. But someone might say, well, who do you mean by the world? Who is the world? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, at first glance, we might be tempted to say, as you look through the Old Testament, many times the world is kind of the Gentiles, right? Anyone that's not a Jew, that's who the world is. Uh, it's the pagan people. It's, it's the atheists who hate God. That's who we might be tempted to say it is. That is the, the world that hates the followers of Christ. But before you get too far with that thought, I want to draw your attention to two verses in our text today. The first is verse 25. Verse 25. Uh, we've already read this already, so I won't read it again. But did you catch that word there? That word there, Jesus makes a reference to their law. But when he quotes it, we realize that their law, what he's quoting, isn't some pagan text. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 69, 4 that says, More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without a cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Jesus is quoting the Jewish Old Testament here. 
And he's saying this is their law says that they are going to do this. Then did you catch in verse 2 of chapter 16? Verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Jews worship in synagogues. Jews have control over the synagogues. They did in Jesus' day. Jews tout their adherence to the law. And further it says the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Do atheists offer service to God? No, they don't. They don't believe in God. So the world isn't strictly atheists. It isn't strictly Gentiles. It's actually a lot more broad than that, isn't it? It's not just talking about them because that's what we always want it to be, right? What Jesus is saying here is that the world, properly understood, is a competing religion that rejects the authority and messiahship of Jesus Christ no matter where it's found. It can be in the church. It can be out the church. It can be an atheist. It cannot be an atheist. It can be anyone, right? It might be a Jew who thinks he's worshiping the father of Israel. But Jesus says in verse 23, well, if you hate Jesus, you hate the father, okay? It it might be a Roman Gentile who worships the demigod of the state. It might be a raging transgender who worships cultural Marxist ideology but calls herself a Christian. Who knows who it's going to come from? But the common thread is that none of these figures— will actually bow the knee to the authority and messiahship of Jesus Christ and obey what he commands. They're not willing to swallow the command that says, do this. They want him, but they don't want what he commands. They want his benefits, but they don't want himself, right? Jesus is the dividing line between the chosen people of God and the world, nothing else. It's Jesus alone and what he says. He is where the line is drawn, even if it's right down the middle of the pews, where some of the people in the church, some of the people in the synagogue believe, and the others do not. And the scary thing is that in Jesus' day, this hatred, hatred actually started in the church. It didn't end in the church. It started in the church, not outside of it, but inside of it. And that's the scary warning for us today. There might be there's the possibility of actually being around the right people of God, but standing for the wrong things, right? Drawing a line in the sand that Jesus didn't draw, and standing for something that Jesus doesn't stand for. Just like in Jesus's day, this can happen because the dividing line between the world and the true people of God is not covenantal standing. It's not church membership. It's not community association. It's allegiance to Jesus Christ and his commandments alone. That's actually a scary thought if you think about it because it can happen in the church. It's not just them. It might actually happen on the inside. So this is a pretty big problem, right? We look around. We see the hatred of the world. Kids are getting shot up. Schools are getting shot up. It's happening all around us. So we might ask, well, what is the solution to this? How How do we fix this? Well, On the one hand, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there isn't a solution per se. There isn't anything that that private school was doing wrong that led to this outcome. Okay, I want you to hear that clearly this morning. In fact, Jesus is actually showing us in this text that that outcome is what we should expect if we are truly abiding in Christ. If we're truly believing what Jesus says, Jesus says, they will hate you. They hated me. They killed me. And they're going to do the same to you. The world will hate you and what you are doing if you look like Jesus. That's the reality. So Jesus does, though, he does give us a kind of solution. But it's not a solution that will prevent the hatred of the world without cause. Now, 
hear, hear me clearly. I'm going to speak slowly because this might get a little bit complicated, but I want you to kind of parse this out in your mind. This causeless hatred is an essential irrationality that stems from rejection of God. The fact that the world hates you is because it hates God, if you're following him. And it hates God without a cause, is what this text tells us. It hates God without a cause. That is why it is essentially irrational. That's why it's irrational, to reject God. There is no rational, there is no logical objection, there is no cause anyone can bring to God that is valid to reject him. There's nothing you can bring to God that makes sense to reject him. Therefore, anyone that is opposed to God is fundamentally irrational. They're not able to make sense of things. And as long as there are those who are irrationally opposed to God, there will be irrational people opposed to the followers of God. They hate Jesus and they will hate you. So the only final solution to prevent this from happening, if there was such a thing, is complete conversion of every single person in the world. That's the only way you get rid of the problem, when there is no world to hate you. Because as long as there's a world, they're going to hate the followers of Jesus. So that's the only final solution. But even then, there are still these prophecies that Jesus says must be fulfilled. Verse 25, did you catch that? The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. In other words, the hatred of the world isn't going against the plan of God. It's actually built into it. Jesus prophesied that it would happen. It's in his word. It was known all along that these people were going to hate the world, and there was no stepping in or stepping around it. There was no sidestep. It was going to happen. So Jesus isn't giving instructions how to stop this. He's actually preparing them to embrace the fact that it will not be stopped. He's saying, get ready. I'm telling you this now so that you do not fall away, says in verse 1, because it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do to stop this. And verse 4 of chapter 16 says, But I said these things to you that when, not if, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. To put it bluntly, there isn't stopping this hatred that is in our power. There's nothing in our power to stop it. It's going to happen. As long as there is the world and as long as you're a Christian, you will be hated by them. Okay? And church, this is what we have to remember. I want you to slow down and think about this. I, I want to urge this very, very big as we think about this. You have to remember this fact in the face of tragic hatred from the world. When all of the school staff at that school gathers together, when the parents of those murdered children come together, when the community comes together and say, what did we do wrong? What is the solution to this? The answer is nothing. You did not do anything. Anything wrong. That is, that is the biblical answer. That is the answer that Jesus tells you this morning. There's nothing that you could have done to stop this. When you face hatred from the world, and you will if you're a follower of Christ in some way or another, it might be even what they call microaggressions. Who knows what it will be? But the world will hate you in some way. When you face hatred from the world uh, that seems to have no rational cause, you can't make sense of it. Maybe you lost your job without cause. Maybe down the road we'll lose our civil rights without cause. Maybe we'll lose religious rights without cause. Whatever the scenario is, you must remember that this hatred from the world is irrational. It will come without a valid cause. You aren't going to make sense of it any other way than looking at it through the lens of they hate Jesus. 
they're going to hate me. They reject God, and because they reject God, they are irrational fundamentally. If they hated me, they are going to hate you, is what Jesus says. So what are we to do with this? Is there any solution at all? Well, the answer that Jesus gives us to this problem is the helper, the Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of truth, as he says in this text. This is the the kind of solution that I was getting at. The helper doesn't come to remove the problem. The helper actually helps us to overcome the problem. There's a difference there, isn't there? Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I've been obliterated. I've been pushed out of the picture. I have overcome the world. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's helping us to do this same thing. He's not helping us to get rid of the problem. He's helping us to overcome the problem. Now, there's two things about the Holy Spirit uh, from this text uh, that I want you to see this morning that helps us with this perennial problem of the world hating us. Now, there's many, many things that we could talk about the Holy Spirit. This is a big subject. But in this text here, there are two main things that I want you to see this morning. And that is the Holy Spirit comes to, number one, bear witness. What does that mean? Look at it in a second. Number two, to convict the world. Convict the world. So bearing witness. First is that the Holy Spirit's role is to continue the ministry of Jesus on earth by bearing witness to his Messiahship. The Holy Spirit continues what Jesus was doing. It's not separate from Jesus. It's not its own thing. The Holy Spirit continues what Jesus was doing on earth. In Jesus' ministry, he validated his Messiahship with all kinds of signs. Right? We've seen this through uh, the Gospel of John. He's done lots of things to help validate what he's doing. In chapter 15, verse 24, it says, If I had not done among you the works that I had done, the works that no one else had did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So by doing these works, it was a revelation of God to the world that they might be left without excuse. They have no cause. They have no reason to reject Jesus. He's given them all that they need to accept him. So because of what Jesus did, they have no rational reason to reject him. So for this reason, Jesus says they are now inescapably guilty of sin. There's no sidestepping it. But Jesus is about to die. He's about to resurrect, and he's going to ascend. He's going to be gone. That's why he says in uh, verses 5 through 7 repeatedly, he's going away. So the question is, is when he goes away and he goes to the Father and he's not in this world physically and his presence isn't here, uh, what's going to happen, right? If he leaves and the world doesn't witness his works, are they left without excuse? Can they say, well, I didn't see Jesus. Right? Can, can they now say that? Now, none of you in this room, if you think about it, have seen, you haven't witnessed the resurrection, have you? We kind of hinted at this a little bit in our Sunday school this morning. We haven't seen the resurrection with our own eyes. We were not eyewitnesses of it. Could we sinlessly reject it? Could we sinlessly reject Easter this coming Sunday and say, I don't believe it? The answer is no, you cannot. Now, why not? Why not? Well, this text actually answers this. In verse 26 through 27, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27 says this. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will, there it is, bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, two things that you probably didn't think about as you read that. 
First is the kind of witnessing. What does it mean that he's bearing witness? Uh, That's the the thing that we might miss. The kind of witnessing that the spirit of truth is doing. And the second is the the fact that he's speaking primarily to the apostles here. Okay? The, The future witnesses of the resurrection. It hasn't happened yet, but they've been with him from the very beginning. That's why he says, because you have been with me from the beginning, he's talking uh, specifically to them. Now, there are lots of places in scripture where Jesus talks to his disciples and he talks to them broadly and it applies to you. This isn't one of them. Okay. You haven't been with Jesus from the very beginning. You haven't witnessed the resurrection like these people have. So what he's saying is that they, as apostles, are going to somehow bear witness to who Jesus is in the world. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, that will continue on after Jesus is gone, after Jesus is ascending. And so how do you think they might do this? How does the Holy Spirit, how do the apostles bear witness to what Jesus has done to continue on the ministry of Jesus? Well, the answer to that is the holy and inspired word of God, the scriptures. This is how we know that the resurrection has happened. This is how we know that these things are true. It is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these apostles were able to bear witness in the the form of scripture, uh, writing a New Testament to God. Right? You had the Old Testament before, right? where the Jews could say, well, this is what the law says. This is what the word of God says. It says it right here. Now, what about all the stuff post-Jesus? Right? We need a New Testament, right? And that's where the, the apostles, the prophets come in, where they come and pen the Holy Scriptures for us so that we can actually look to it and say, well, this is where the spirit of truth is leading us. This is leading us into all truth. Now, Peter, he actually wrote about this in one of his epistles. As he's writing to the New Testament church, as they're reeling with all that has happened, he gives an explanation of how the Holy Spirit inspires the words that we have for us today. 2 Peter 1, 16-21 says this. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. Just, just listen. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses... Right? He saw it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. Right? For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter's getting at. The the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible that we have before us, is a testament of the Holy Spirit and the apostles bearing witness to what happened in Jesus' day. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. They heard the voices. They touched Jesus. They were all around him. They were there from the beginning is what the scripture says. And Jesus says by doing that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you're actually going to be able to bring something to the world. You're going to bear witness to the world so that no one can say, I didn't know. Right? We've been told this was the first way that the helper, the spirit of truth, helps us to cope with this problem of hatred from the world. This is our great help. It gives us inspired answers. The Holy Spirit, God's answer to our deepest questions in the form of God's word to us. Think about it. When tragedy occurs, when you see these things on the news, 
We should be running to God's word to hear what our comforter, our helper says about this. What do we what do we think when such a thing happens? Do we run to our own interpretation? Do we try to process it in our own minds? Do we look to see what the what the world says about what has happened? Well, they're going to give us all kinds of solutions, right? Is that the right answer? No. God gives us answers in his word because he bears witness. It leaves every man without excuse because it takes what is Christ and his ministry and it declares it to the world, to us, through the apostolic ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the way that the Holy Spirit and the apostles come to bear witness in the world. That's the first solution to this problem. Now, I said there's two, right? The second is convicting the world. Convicting the world. So the second way we read in verse 16 or chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, it says, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus here. He systematically divides this conviction into three parts. He says sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he kind of elaborates just a little bit more. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, is what he says. So the, the Holy Spirit's role is to disallow a true disbelief in Jesus. Because of what the, the Holy Spirit is doing in his ministry, he's saying it, it isn't a possibility anymore that you can say, I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe those things that Jesus has said. Because of the enduring witness of the inspired scriptures, we are not left in question about the Messiahship of Jesus. It has been perfectly recorded for us. It's not as if one can say, well, since I wasn't there from the beginning, we just really don't know what happened and I can't believe it. No, Jesus actually tells his apostles, since you were here from the beginning, you're going to actually have a role in this with the help of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to what has happened. You're going to keep carrying it on so that no one can say, I wasn't there. We can't say this for two reasons. One, because the apostles were there from the beginning and did record it for us. It's there in scripture, right? And two, this apostolic witness is maintained throughout the tradition of the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and it's even said to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he says this, that it's the pillar and buttress of truth. It tells us what we are to believe about what is true. So scripture and the church both convict the world concerning sin and righteousness through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the way it carries it out into the world, to convict us of sin, to say, that isn't right, and you know it. Right? You know it isn't right. Everyone can look around and say, this is wrong. This is hatred. This is not love. This isn't a solution to the problem. This is sin. Now, concerning righteousness, he says, because Jesus goes to the Father and we will see him no longer. We might add, see him no longer in person. Right? Here's the answer. Jesus isn't here anymore, so what? Uh, but through the scriptures and the apostolic witness, there is a sense in which we do still see Jesus. We see him in his word. We may not have touched his scars like Thomas, but Jesus declares to Thomas that blessed is the one who believes without seeing. Right? Where we're able to come and look in the scripture and we still believe the witness that we have been given. We see what embodied perfect righteousness looks like in the scriptures when we see the person of Jesus. Think about what a gift it is to be given the gospel of John. We've been camping out in that book for almost two years now, just sinking ourselves deep in, into the ministry of Jesus and what he looks like. 
All his movements, all the actions, all the words that he said, we're we're hyper-focusing on him because it means so much to us. That is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he is showing us what righteousness actually looks like. Right? When we see Jesus, we no longer have a law that's kind of just this abstract, don't do this, don't do that. It's not that it wasn't righteous. It's just, well, we didn't ever have an example. No one had perfectly fulfilled the law until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he perfect, perfectly fulfilled the, the scriptures, the law, and showed us what righteousness looks like. And the Holy Spirit says, that's Jesus. That's what I'm declaring to you. That's righteousness. That's what it looks like. And if you're not hitting that, then you're being convicted of sin, you're seeing righteousness, and also there's judgment. There is judgment. That's the last thing. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That reign is coming to an end. Through the witness of the Holy Spirit working through the church, we can see now that Satan did not triumph in the death of Jesus. That was really significant. The moment that the world thought that their hatred had won, oh, right, we'll kill Jesus. We hate him. We're going to kill him. We're going to solve this problem. If we just murder him, then it'll all be over, right? All the followers won't follow him anymore after he's dead. Was that a solution? No. The the moment that the world thought that they won in the death of Jesus was actually the moment that they lost. That was the moment that that Christianity won. So once Christ resurrected from from, from the dead, it was proven to the world that death had not won. Satan had been cast, cast out, no longer to be the ruler of this world. The rightful king, the rightful ruler of the world is Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is leading the church in this same pattern. Have you noticed that the more you kill the Christians, the more the church grows? Right? That's why we have this saying uh, from the early uh, from the early church. They said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Kill a Christian and watch how many more Christians will pop up. Right through persecution, through hardship, through suffering. It's the truth. It's the fact. If you look down through history, that the church only grows the more you persecute it. The more you hate the church, the more it heaps coals on the world and says this is the truth. This is the way it goes. This is God. This is what he's doing. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. He's showing you that it's sin. He's showing you this is the wrong way. We've seen Jesus in his word. It's righteous. He is good. He's holy. This is the way to live. And you know what? This is the only way to live. This is the direction that the world is going. It is being conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ's people are looking like him. And the more they look like him, the more the world is looking like him. He is changing everything. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing as he bears witness and he convicts the world. He's proving to the world that it is true. So church, what I want you to see from this passage is that trials will come if you're following Christ. It's inevitably going to happen. As long as there is the world and there is Christ and Christians, there is going to be hatred happening. The world will hate you. You will be persecuted. You might feel busted and broken on the inside because of the rejection from the world. But the hope that Jesus gives us that keeps us from despair that keeps us from falling away even, he says, is the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He is the one that leads you into this this relationship, this personal role to continue the, the life and the ministry of Jesus with you. It's like Jesus was right here with us. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. He's continuing what Jesus started. So just like Jesus was there to answer the disciples' questions when the church turned their back on them, what do we do, Jesus? This is our church. They won't let us back at church. Jesus is there for them. He gives them answers. Just like that, the Holy Spirit is there for you to help you through hardships like that. Just like Jesus was there to to counsel the apostles when the Romans demanded allegiance to Caesar. Caesar is Lord, is what the Romans would like to tell the disciples. They look to Jesus. Jesus, what do we think about that? Jesus says, I'm Lord. Right? He gives us answers. He gives us direction. Just like Jesus was there to walk them through suffering. 
through their hardest trials, through the death of their loved ones, through, through murder, through, through all kinds of sickness and suffering, the spirit of truth is given to you to dwell in you personally, to be near to you, to give you that guidance, to direct and guide you into all truth. And the way that he does that isn't just some abstract way. He gives us God's word, right? When Peter's talking about the way that the inspired scriptures come to us, he says it's like a, a light shining in the darkness. You look around and you see darkness all around you. Peter says, look to God's word. It's going to guide you. It's going to give you answers, right? When you're longing and you're suffering and you're, you're just wishing, oh, I wish that God would just give me a word. If he could just say something to me. It's right here, church. That's the way that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. It bears witness with us that Jesus is true. That all these things that we put our hope in is, as we come to celebrate Easter every year, this isn't just some mantra that we get in. right? This is truth. This is what Jesus is still doing in his word. His word is living and active. It discerns all the way down to the bone and the marrow. It cuts down. And it even it discerns the intentions of the heart. It convicts us. It shows us what is true. And that's the way that the Holy Spirit is still working in the church. This is the way that Jesus can say it's to your advantage that I go away. That's amazing. We would think, well, it wouldn't just be better if Jesus was still here. We could just make our pilgrimages all the way over to Jerusalem. No, it's actually better. It's, it's good that he goes to the Father and gives the Holy Spirit to each and every one of us because we, each and every individual one of us, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us where the ministry of Jesus is happening right here just like it was happening with his disciples. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing privilege. And that is true that Jesus can say it's to your advantage that we all have the Spirit resting upon us. That we're all having this distribution of the Spirit to where it's not just the, the people that like Moses in the Old Testament. We are like Eldad and Medad who prophesy outside the camp. Right? The Spirit's on us and Moses is saying that's good. That's a good thing. That it's, it's everyone. It's being distributed among all believers so that we might have our hope in Jesus at all times. Never losing hope because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.